Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in Matthew 8, Mark 2 through 4, and Luke 7. And a little bit in Luke 8. We are basically going to cover these seven things. We are going to be talking about Jesus healing the centurion's servant in Capernaum, and that's in Luke 7 and also in Matthew 8. Then we're going to talk about the widow of Nain's son who was raised from the dead, as contained in Luke 7. After that, we're going to discuss John the Baptist sending messengers to Jesus, and they're going to ask Jesus a question. And if you remember, it's at this point where John is in Macarius. He's imprisoned uh, by Herod. After this, we will discuss a woman anointing Jesus's feet, as contained in Luke 7. And then there's this discussion in Matthew chapter 8, and it's also contained in Luke chapter 9, where the Savior says, let the dead bury their dead. And then in Mark chapter 3, there's a discussion about who is the family of Jesus. This discussion is also contained in Luke 8. Following this is where Jesus calms the storm, as contained in Matthew 8, Mark 4, and Luke 8. So that's an overview of the seven items that we're going to be covering. So with that, let's start. Let's go to Luke chapter 7, and we're going to read the story of Jesus healing a centurion's servant. Which is very similar to the story of healing the nobleman's son, which we did a couple weeks ago. Very similar stories. This one's a little bit different, and he loves this servant dearly. And so we read in Luke 7 that Jesus enters into Capernaum, and a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him, saying, that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he, meaning the centurion, loveth our nation, and he built us this synagogue. Now, the first thing we need to see is the presentation of a Roman centurion in a good light. Because someone wore the uniform of a centurion, the common judgment would be, well, he must be an enemy. But not everybody who was of Rome was bad. So, These individuals come to Jesus and say, no, we like this guy. This is a good man. So we have a lot of social things going on here. We have an individual who's an outsider who's shown great favor to the Jews, but this is a person who owns another person. I mean, slavery was a thing in the Roman Empire, but in this context, at least the way I read it, the centurion cares about this individual, this servant here in the text. Now, Centurions, they were the backbone of the Roman army, and they were in charge of discipline. And a centurion commanded a century. That idea of a century denotes a hundred, but in practice, it probably was more like a commander of 60 to 80 troops. And this centurion's salary was probably a lot more than a typical soldier, and it depends on who you read, but probably somewhere in that space of 16 to 17 times that of a regular person in the army, even 30 to 60 times as much for someone who was a high-ranking centurion. And 
to own a slave or a servant, that might cost about a third of their pay for a year, at least for a soldier. But for a centurion who was paid far more, it probably would be less of their salary. And the idea that this centurion, quote, built a synagogue here in Capernaum, what that tells me is that this person is a friend of the Jews, and that would be a significant sum of money. Now, he's not a full convert to Judaism, but he certainly is showing favor towards them. The way I read it is this is an individual that sees the Jews as holy people, and he's one of them as much as he can be. But then there's also this distinction, because when they come to him, this is what we read in verse 6. Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to say unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. Uh, The way I read this is he says something to the effect of, I'm not enough, or I am not competent, in order that you should enter under my roof. This final bit here is what's called a subjunctive prohibition. In other words, this soldier is basically telling the Savior, hey, don't come under my roof. As a Gentile, he would be considered by some to be unclean. And so, especially when it comes to like eating food in his home. And so to invite a Jewish teacher into his home would have been offensive to many people under normal circumstances. But in this case, at least the way I read it, the community's elders are basically making an exception. So the question is, okay, what's Jesus going to do? We're kind of at the edges of what's considered acceptable. And so look what he says. The man says, I'm a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and he turned him about, and he said to the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith no, not in Israel. And they that were sent returned to the house, and they found the servant whole that had been sick. So the way I read it is Jesus doesn't go into the man's house. The man gives him this prohibition, hey, don't come in my house. I think the man and maybe even Jesus are trying to be sensitive to the feelings of the people here in Capernaum. But what happens is the servant is healed. And so I really like this miracle as a symbol for Jesus, his sensitivity to cultural boundaries, but also his acknowledgement of this man's faith and how this man says, hey, Jesus, say it. Just say the word and I know it will be done. And Jesus says, I see your faith. And the servant is healed. Remember, this is the city where so many miracles of Jesus have been performed. This is the same place where Peter's mother-in-law is healed. In Matthew 8, verse 14 and 15, we read, She was sick with fever, that he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and ministered unto them. I think Jesus had a great affinity for these people. They received him, and even outsiders are receiving Jesus. And I want to point out, what was so profound about this man's faith? Why does Jesus go out of the way to acknowledge this man's faith is greater than anything I found in Israel? Because we've seen tremendous faith in Israel. So what was the act of faith? Now, Mike's pointed out that it's significant coming from a Roman, but what was the act of faith that I need to understand was so significant that it caught Jesus's attention? And I think the idea here is this man is saying, I don't need to see it because you say the word and I'm going to trust it. I don't need to see it. 
I think of Thomas's reaction after the resurrection. Unless I see it, I won't believe it. I think that's very common in all of our lives, is that I trust most what I see. And the invitation is that we let go of that need to see it. I think there was a moment when Martin Harris said to Joseph Smith, why don't we put the gold plates on display? Then people will flock to the church. And I wonder how many people today kind of have that idea that if we could show more, if we could demonstrate, if there were archaeological evidence that proved Zarahemla existed and that Nephi really did exist, if we could find his name written into some stone in some place on this planet that was archaeological proof that the Book of Mormon existed, we think that people would flock to the Book of Mormon. And that is just simply not true. The Savior responded to Martin's thought in section 5, verse 7, by basically saying, if they don't believe what I've said in the book, they wouldn't believe if you could put the plates on display. And that is a lesson for all of us. Let go of the need to see it. If you will read the Book of Mormon and say, I accept the words He spoke truth. I don't need to see the evidence in order to believe. Then we are worthy of that commendation from the Savior. Greater faith have I not seen in all of Israel. If he said something in your patriarchal blessing, don't let doubt creep in and cause you to say, well, I need to see proof. No, he said it and it's going to happen, and I trust it. I think that was the act of this centurion that was so significant. Just say the word, and that's all I need. He seems to be that kind of guy because he's an outsider, but he shows great faith. I think who's building a synagogue and is not a Jew, and I think it's a man who believes. He's just that kind of guy. And so with that, we're going to go to the next story, which is the story of the widow of Nain, That's a place that was located about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. And so Luke is going to refer to it as a city, though he goes on to present a village-like atmosphere with a community mourning the loss of the widow's son. So Mike, how long would it take you to walk that distance? That's a ways, because it's hilly, right? Yeah. So he's in Capernaum with the centurion servant. Now listen very carefully to verse 11. It came to pass the day after... He's in Capernaum on one day, and the day after, he's in Nain. He got there in time to catch the funeral procession at the edge of the city. So I think the assumption is he got there just in time. So what would drive Jesus to leave Capernaum and take that distance by foot to be in Nain the next day. I need to point that out because that's the Messiah we worship. We need to understand that that is your Savior. That is who he is. He knew he was needed in Nain the next day. He knew a woman was suffering. I suspect he traveled through the night, and he ran to her. I love it. Now, We need to kind of understand a little bit about the culture and the position of vulnerability that this woman is in. You see, Israelite law dictated that a widow did not inherit anything from her husband's estate. Only her children do. 
And although that restriction would change in a couple generations after this event in Luke, at least as far as we can tell in the time period that this is taking place, she's not able to inherit anything, and now her only son is dead. So she's in a very difficult space. One scholar says this, for a widow's only son to die was considered extremely tragic. It also left this woman dependent on public charity for support unless she had other means or relatives to take care of her, especially relatives of means. And so because she's in this extreme place of vulnerability, we read that Jesus has compassion on her. That's in verse 13. As he comes into the city and he says, weep not, he came and touched the buyer. And they that bare him stood still, and he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. Now, when Jesus goes and interrupts the funeral procession, that was a breach of Jewish law and custom. And then him touching the buyer, a stretcher on which the body was born, it really does expose Jesus to a day of being unclean. That's Numbers 19, 21, and 22. And him touching the corpse, Jesus would have been viewed as contracting a corpse uncleanliness, the severest form of ritual impurity in Judaism. Only those closest to the deceased were expected to expose themselves to this kind of impurity. Now, in Jesus's case, I see the influence of the curse going in the other direction. Instead of him being unclean, he is communicating cleanliness and health from his personage into this dead individual. So one way we can read this is Jesus is putting himself in this situation as an insider, as if he's family. And I read it that way. I really see Jesus looking at this individual as if he is his brother. And I also see this as a great hearkening back to another widow's son raised from the dead. And that's the story of Elijah and the widow contained in 1 Kings 17, 8 through 24. And I see Luke showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophet. Remember, Elijah is a big deal in the Old Testament. So I, I see that happening here. Um, now, Mike, I, that's very significant that he would pick up Elijah's mantle and wrap himself in it. Do you remember from the Old Testament, when Elijah was taken to heaven, his mantle fell Elisha picks it up, repeats the same parting of the water, and says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? It was the way of saying, I have been wrapped in his authority, I'm repeating his miracles, therefore accept me as his successor. That's what Jesus is doing to the Jews. Every one of them loved the great prophet Elijah. They sang his praises. They provided a seat for him at their table every Passover. Elijah was a big deal. And now the Savior has come, and he's wrapped himself in the exact same miracle that gave them the awe and brought the majesty towards Elijah. That's so significant, because now it is hypocritical then to reject Christ and accept Elijah. That's the position he's put him in. Now, the other thing we need to see is a veiled symbol of his own rising from the dead. We don't know where Joseph, Mary's husband, went, but he seems to have disappeared. He took Jesus to Egypt. 
Then he brought Mary and the baby back to Nazareth, and he clearly was a carpenter for a while in that Jesus was known as Joseph's son. But he then disappears. He doesn't seem to be around during the Savior's ministry. Mary seems to have been a widow, and Jesus was the son of a widowed woman. So when Elijah in the Old Testament raised from death the son of a widow woman, it was a foreshadowing of the Savior. And now he's doing the same thing. Not only does he have power over death to bring this widow's son back, but he has power over death to rise up himself and live again. I like that. I mean, and it also kind of makes sense when he's on the cross and he asks John to take care of his mom. I think tradition would say that Joseph has passed away at that point. It's at this point in the Luke narrative that we read that John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus. This narrative is also found in Matthew 2, 2 through 19. And I have to reference this because I really enjoyed it. I really liked how the chosen portrayed this. They did this in season three, episode six. You see John is in prison and John the Baptist in prison sends some of his disciples to Jesus and they ask Jesus this question, are you he that should come or should we look for another? In verse 20, it says, the men which were coming to him said, John the Baptist has sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or should we look for another? So we reread that question twice there. And in that same hour, he, meaning Jesus, cured many of their infirmities and plagues and evil spirits, and unto them that were blind he gave sight. And Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard. How the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. To the poor is the gospel preached. Now, Robert J. Matthews said this regarding this experience. Many Bible commentators have thought that John himself was wavering while in prison, wondering and even doubting whether Jesus was the Messiah, and therefore he had sent two disciples to inquire. That is not likely, however, since John knew by revelation who Jesus was. And so what if John sent them to go and come and see, essentially? Like, hey, you guys, go ask, go see. And in so doing, they have this experience. Now, that's why I like how the Chosen portrays it. The two disciples are standing there with Peter, and they say, is he the one, or should we look for another? And Peter looks at him with a smile, and he says, come and see. And they witness Jesus healing people. So the doubter wasn't John. The doubters may have been his disciples, and John's response was, well, go see for yourself. Check it out, yeah. Go check it out. Go see if he's the Messiah. I just can't see John being the doubter. Now, everything we know about John, I just don't think even imprisonment would cause him to doubt. But I can very much see John trying to help a doubter who had been a faithful follower of him and is now doubting because John's in prison, say, go see for yourself. That's very much in line with John's mission. You go see for yourself that he is the Messiah. Now, that's how I read it. I'm totally congruent with Brother Matthews, but I also want to throw this out there as a possibility, and I don't know. But what if John, like the rest of us, has moments when they're like, Lord, where are you? Because John is in a similar circumstance 
that Joseph was in when he was in Liberty Jail, and he cries out. Remember, Joseph's a prophet. He's had visions, and he says, Lord, where are you? How long am I going to be in this circumstance? And so John is a prophet, having had revelation and having had these experiences, could still be in a state of wondering. Now, I don't know, but if I had to pick one side, I pick the side where he's sending his disciples, hey, go check it out. You go and come back and tell me what you see. And I love the presentation that's here in Luke where they see these experiences, they see these miracles, and then Jesus says, hey, go tell him. The blind see and the lame walk. The very next story is one of my absolute favorites in the New Testament. Jesus is invited to the home of Simon, a Pharisee. And when he gets there, as was tradition, he was not anointed or washed. He was not treated like a respected guest. And while he was there, in comes a woman from the city which was known as a sinner. Now, I would suggest this is a repentant sinner who is coming and seeking her Savior. And she comes in and weeps at his feet and washes his feet with her hair and anoints him. That's how she felt about him. You can just sense the love that she has and the pleadings for his forgiveness and his blessing. And now comes a very wonderful lesson for Simon. Verse 39. I want to focus on a word. Now, I know it's italicized, which means the translators put it in. But I find it so very significant. When the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it. That word it has come to mean so much to me. He saw it. And because of that, he spake within himself and said, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman that is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. Now, if you have some older scriptures, like back in the 90s, pull out that verse and look at that last word. Is that the three M's? It is the best typo <laughs> in the scriptures. It's the best typo I've ever seen. It includes three N's. She was a sinner. And I love it because that's what Simon saw, a triple-N sinner. She is not worthy. She should be out of my house. Why is Jesus even letting her touch him? Now, going back to last week's Come Follow Me podcast on judgment and seeing clearly, if the beam in my eye is it, if you see it, if you see the sin or if you see the behavior if you see the body of the woman only, whatever the it is, and Jesus knowing that says, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. He said, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, and one owed 500 pence and the other 50. When they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And Jesus says, thou hast rightly judged. Now, just a side note on that. The Savior seems to indicate he measures our desire for forgiveness 
by the appreciation and the love we would show for being forgiven. That's a significant thought to ponder this week. He is more likely to forgive those who would feel extreme gratitude and relief and praise for the forgiveness. If that's not what forgiveness means to you, if your desire for forgiveness is a technicality and not a restoration of that relationship, then you may not be as qualified for the forgiveness as others. I think that's a significant thought. But thou hast rightly judged, Simon. Now Jesus turned to the woman and said unto Simon, and I know that I say this a lot, but I think these might be some of my favorite words Jesus ever uttered. He said to Simon, as he looked at the woman, seest thou this woman? In my scriptures, I have those two statements highlighted. Simon saw it. Jesus saw her. Now talk about clearly seeing. Ponder all of the it's that have been in your eyes as you've passed judgment on other people. Friend and foe, get the it out of your eye and see the person. And then he says, I entered into thy house and thou gavest me no water for thy feet, but she hath washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Why? For she loved much. Unto whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. The speed at which the Savior forgives is increased when we desperately desire that relationship with Him to come back. Repentance is the restoration of the relationship with Christ, much more so than checking off a box. If you were to ask me, paint me a picture of repentance, this is where I would go. That woman desires the Savior's relationship in her life, and he seems to acknowledge that as just cause to forgive her sin. She wanted that relationship. She loved him. She reached out to him. She tore the mountain down. She filled the valley. She straightened the crooked path. And what did he do? He ran back through it, and he forgave her. He said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. And then later at the end of verse 15, thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. And I think we could kind of use some synonyms there. Thy desire to restore the relationship hath saved thee. Now keep the relationship, go in peace. One of the most beautiful exchanges in the New Testament, and I'm so grateful every time I I read it, for a Savior who sees me. Trust that. Yeah, excellent. 
So now this next part is the story of where the Savior says, let the dead bury the dead. This is in Luke 9, 59 and 60, but I think for the sake of this podcast, we're going to go to Matthew 8, 18. And this is what it says. Now, when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandments to depart to the other side. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. When we read this, it can sound pretty harsh, but one of the eldest son's most basic responsibilities in both Greek and Jewish cultures was his father's burial. Failure to meet this obligation could make one considered a social outcast in their village. And so the initial burial took place shortly after someone died, but some people argue that what is in view here is that maybe he's been dead for a year. You see, you would be buried in a sarcophagus, and then after about a year, your bones would be left, and they would take your bones, and they would put them in an ossuary. It's a little box about the size of the longest bone in your body, which is your thigh bone. And so the son would return and bury the bones in this box in a slot in the tomb's wall. And so the son, in this narrative, there's a few options here. One of them is he could be asking for as much as a year's delay. He could be coming to the Savior saying, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you, but it's going to be about a year. I've got to wait that time period. That's one option. Another option is this, that in some of the Semitic languages, this idea of wait until I bury my father is a way of asking for a delay until my father dies, meaning my father's long from being dead, but hey, when he's dead, well, then I'll go and follow you. In other words, him saying, you know what, I definitely want to follow you, um, but not today. It's kind of like uh, Augustine where he said, you know, make me holy, but not yet. It sounds kind of harsh, I guess, in a modern reading, if we read it with our modern lens, it sounds kind of harsh to read it like this. Hey, my father just died. It's Friday. The funeral's Sunday. Jesus, I want to follow you. Can you spot me a couple days? And Jesus would sound pretty harsh to say, let the dead bury their dead. So I'm going to give the whole story the benefit of the doubt, and I'm going to say, this young man is probably coming to Jesus, and he's saying, hey, listen, I want to follow you, but it could be 20 years. And Jesus saying, yeah, that you're doing it wrong. So with that... Let's look at that verse where it says in verse 20, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests. Now this stands as a foil to the calling of the 12. Do you remember when he has them move the nets to the other side and they bring in a hull of fish greater than they've ever had? And Jesus chooses that moment to say, come follow me. And they immediately come and follow. Now what those men saw because of that willingness to follow him was miraculous. It was incredible. Now, contrast that with so many people in the New Testament who make excuses, or I'd like to, but. It's always the but. 
Now, I don't think Jesus is condemning anyone who had a legitimate, oh, I really need to take care of this. My heart is with you, Lord. I'm 100% with you, but I have an obligation over here. Can I take care of the obligation? I don't think that's the issue. It's the, I want to follow you, but. And so Jesus is going to push back. One man says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he says, really? I don't have a home. Foxes have holes. The birds have nests, but I don't have a place on this earth to go. Are you really going to follow me there? So I think it's the invitation to say, how committed are you to following me? What if the place I take you is Gethsemane? Will you still follow me? And that's, I think, where he loses some people. At the news that he's taking them through a wine press and then into glory, like we're going to see in John chapter 6, many of his disciples will walk no more with him. They'll say, this is too hard. This is a hard saying, who can hear it? And they'll walk no more with him. That, I think, is what he's really trying to get at, is what if I don't have a home? What if it's not comfortable? What if it's difficult and hard? Will you still follow me? And I think that's where people sometimes raise up and say, well, okay, maybe not. Here's another version. The Luke chapter 9 version is beautiful, but the Luke 14 version of this concept is worth mentioning. He sent his servant at supper time to say unto them that were bidden, come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. I want to follow you, but I can't, and here's my excuse. The first said unto him, I bought a piece of ground. It needs to be plowed. Pray that I be excused. The other one said, I have five yoke of oxen. They need to be proved. Let me be excused. Well, guess what? None of them feasted with him. None of them saw the miracles that the disciples are going to see because they were willing to forsake all. So many people who got to the tree didn't stay at the tree because they were the but and make excuse people. So the invitation is follow him all the way. Follow him through Gethsemane. Follow him through the challenges he may lead us through. Remember, Jesus is going to say to the disciples, if you give up houses or lands or anything, you will receive a hundredfold in the kingdom of God. So with that, we're going to depart to Mark chapter 3, verse 31. This is the discussion about who is in the family of Jesus. Mark 3.31 reads, There came then his brethren and his mother, and, standing without, sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him, and he said, Behold my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. I really like what Julie Smith says about this. She says, Jesus' statement about who his family is is revolutionary. First, given the effort that Mark has taken to suggest Jesus' exalted status and authority, to now show Jesus recognizing a large crowd as his family is quite extraordinary. Next, given the role of the biological family in this society, Jesus is presenting an absolutely revolutionary teaching. 
The passage does leave open the door to his biological family becoming part of his new family. He has not rejected them. He just can't welcome them into the new family until they do the will of God. Jesus isn't presented as being anti-family, but when in conflict, doing the will of God supersedes obligation to biological family. It is important not to focus too much on the exclusion of his family, who, according to tradition, did eventually come to believe in him, if you go to Acts chapter 1 and read that. But we should focus on the inclusiveness that Jesus is offering to all people who want to follow him. Unstated here is the cost of discipleship. All of these people have left their families, including Jesus. The rupture of family relationships is the cost of doing the will of God by being with Jesus. I think that's excellent commentary here. In other words, the first and foremost thing is our obligation to God and finding his will, doing his will, or in the words of President Nelson, hearing him and coming unto him. And if we do that, other things will fall into place. And we need to rank the three families to which we belong. I don't think in any way Jesus is diminishing his earthly mother. We know how he feels about her. This is the same woman that on the cross, in absolute agony, he will be so concerned about her well-being. John, will you please take care of her? That's the same woman. So he can't be diminishing her role in his life. But what I think he's doing is he's distinguishing between the fact that all of us belong to three families— One family is the family of eternal Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother. We are all their children, and that creates a brotherhood among us that gives me a sense of identity. I am a child of God. That family we all belong to. Number two, we all belong to an earthly family. Jetty and Tracy are my parents. Jennifer is my wife. I have 10 children. I treasure that earthly family. It's very important to me. But the third family we need to see as significant as well. And I read from the Book of Mormon, Mosiah chapter 5, verse 7, Now because of the covenant which ye have made, ye shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. For behold, this day he hath spiritually begotten you. For ye say that your hearts are changed through faith in his name, therefore ye are born of him and have become his sons and his daughters. And that makes me children of the covenant. Do you remember in President Nelson's talk about the choices of eternity, he says there are three identities we need to hold on to, a child of God, a disciple of Christ, and a child of the covenant. I belong to the family of the covenant the family where Christ is my father. And that family will result in an eternal earthly family. I cannot make my second family an eternal family if I am not part of that third family, the family of the covenant. So Jesus is simply saying, look, become part of my family of the covenant He is extending an invitation into his covenant family where he becomes our father so that all of our earthly families can become eternal families. So these are my brethren and my mother and my relatives of the covenant. Join them. 
In no way was he excluding or diminishing his earthly mother. But again, let me repeat it. If we really put importance to this, we're not saying that three is more important than two. We're saying that two will have limitations if we don't find ourselves a member of the third family. That now leads us into an absolute beautiful little scene that is symbolically repeated almost every day of our life. So many of us live in a raging sea where the world is banging upon our little boat trying to sink us. We deal with financial obligations. We deal with social obligations. We have health issues, and we struggle. And sometimes we, like Peter, cry out, carest thou not that we perish? Now, may I point out that Jesus was not troubled. He was asleep. But he wakes up and he says to the sea, three words that I believe Jesus is trying to say to every one of us. Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. Jesus then turns around and says, why are you so fearful? He's not going to let this ship go down. Trust him. Yes, it is waging, and yes, it is banging against the boat. But if he is not concerned, you should not be concerned. We can have peace in the storm until we have peace from the storm. And the only way we can do that is if we hold on to him. Now, the reason I love Mark's account is verse 41. They feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I love that line in Be Still My Soul. The winds and the waves still know, and they will obey him. All the turmoil in your life, all the challenges, all the stress, all the storm will obey him. And so we hold tightly on to him, trusting that he won't let the boat sink, that he will help us navigate this storm. He will bring peace in the storm. And then someday he will stand up and say to every storm in my life, every financial challenge, every health issue, even death itself, he will say to every storm in my life, peace be still. We should have that awe and wonder about him all the time that they had when he calmed the storm. Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? Only in Christ can we find true peace, to be still. And with that, we conclude this podcast. We will see you next week when we cover Matthew 9 and 10, Mark 5, and Luke 9. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.